0: Hey, it's episode 230, and today we're chatting about heart health, the history of why heart disease was blamed on saturated fat, what to look for in a blood panel to assess heart disease risk, what causes sclerosis. research suggesting that not all heart attacks are caused by a blockage what causes a heart attack without a blockage and what markers you should track to prevent them what causes heart failure and how best to approach it and so much more you guys i have experienced a crazy amount of highs and lows with my cholesterol and i can tell you that for any human that wants to regulate their hormones and be in their best health you need to listen to today's episode because there's so much misconception about cholesterol. And when I go into any quote unquote regular doctor's office, they're always like, "Ah, oh, your cholesterol is too high. And I'm like, if it dips down below this certain level, I don't get my period anymore. And I turn into a crazy human. So I need it to be higher. So. Listen to today's episode with an open heart, an open mind. It's really good. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Hussey, MSDC, is a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. He attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He is a health coach, speaker, and the author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood Oregon. Dr. Hussey guides clients from around the world back to health by using the latest research and health attaining Strategies. In his downtime, he likes to be outdoors, playing sports, reading, writing, and spending time with his wife and their pets. You can find out more from Stephen by going to resourceyourhealth.com. He's on Instagram, Doctor Stephen. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N Hussy H-U-S-S-E-Y. You can also find him on Facebook with the same name and Twitter with the same name. Okay, let's do this thing. Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel, and you're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've put together a free 21-page guide on achieving weight loss on your keto diet if nothing is working. Did you know imbalanced hormones are generally at the core of all struggles that women face when it comes to our weight? Grab your free guide at ketoforwomen.com to get the steps you need to overcome the hurdles standing in your way. Thanks so much for listening, and let's get started with the show.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Stephen Hussey and I am the Heart Coach at ResourceForHealth.com. And I'm very excited to be on the Keto Diet Podcast today. And today we're going to be talking mainly about heart health because that's my passion. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, and you'll see why that's my passion. Um, but first of all, a little bit you know, a little bit of my background. Um, I'm a chiropractor, and I also have a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine, and my my story is that I, you know, from a very young age, I had a lot of chronic ailments and conditions. Um, I think from the time I was two years old, my dad and my parents started noticing me like wheezing and coughing. And my dad knew from his experiences with asthma that I likely had asthma. So they took me to the doctor and I was diagnosed with asthma. And, you know, I was put on inhalers and nebulizers and things like that. And so from then, you know, as I grew up, um, I had a lot of inflammatory conditions. I had uh, irritable bowel syndrome. I used to break out into chronic hives all over my body. Uh, I didn't know why. I used to have terrible allergies, um, all kinds of inflammatory things. And I ultimately ended up with the autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, where my body attacked the cells in my pancreas that make insulin. And so now I no longer make insulin. I do think that if I had known then, when I was nine years old, what I know now, that I could have reversed that process if I caught it soon enough and uh, allowed my cells to replenish themselves and heal and lower that inflammation. But needless to say, I didn't know that information, and so um, I don't. I no longer make it so and I'm type one diabetic. And so in all that, my parents and I were very reliant on, on Western medicine to help me manage those conditions, uh, those things that I had. And that's, they were very helpful, and I'm, I'm thankful for um, all that they did. However, as I, as I grew up, and especially when I was in college, I uh, started getting interested in health, and I started to notice that the way that I lived my life had a direct impact on my ability to manage these conditions especially type 1 diabetes but also the inflammation and things like that and i thought that it was weird that that no doctor had ever told me that that you know i would basically go to the doctor and they would you know do tests or whatever and and get up to date on me and then they would either change my medications whether it was insulin or the the drugs that i was on for inflammation and things uh or they would add new drugs or things like that or they would do a new test and i thought that it was very weird that i'd never heard from them that if i changed what i ate or the way i live my life or exposure to toxins or things like that 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 would have a an impact on my health and uh, on my ability to control these conditions that i had and so you know i kept uh, getting more and more information this obviously piqued my interest and so i got really into a healthy lifestyle in college i majored in health and wellness um, and I really started to figure out that, yeah, you know, I could do things that completely manage these conditions. And I'm happy to say that, you know, throughout all my trial and error and all the learning that I've done through college and my medical education and my master's degree and all the independent research I've done, that I have completely gotten rid of all the conditions that I had aside from type 1 diabetes, um, which I manage with a very low carbohydrate diet. Um, I mean type 1 is kind of the collateral damage that happened from all that in my inflamed youth and you know Unless there's a stem cell cure or something like that. I'll I'll be stuck with that But it's very well managed with a, a low carbohydrate diet, but even as well managed as it is I remember going to the doctor's offices when I was a kid and seeing all the educational posters Uh, and everything that, you know, would tell me that, you know, as a type one diabetic, I am, you know, predisposed to all these vascular conditions, whether it's heart disease uh, or amputations or uh, decreases in um, eye health, uh, all these different types of things or neuropathy, that kind of stuff. And so I asked doctors why that was, and they said it was vascular damage that would happen because of high blood sugars, because, you know, really, no matter how hard I try, uh, my blood sugars will be be higher than than normal persons, although they're getting pretty close with you know different insulin pumps and different continuous glucose monitors uh, to make them pretty non diabetic and so i've done everything I can to look into how to prevent um, this vascular damage or heart disease in general cardiovascular um, ailments and so much of my independent research and every time I heard something about you know heart disease or anything like that during my medical education or anywhere my ears perked up and I would soak that in you know and so I've I've amassed this I guess large body of knowledge about cardiovascular disease and what I found was pretty surprising and so that's what I want to talk about today I want to talk about heart health um, and I think the real path to heart health and some of the confusion uh, that we've had on heart health Um, and really get to the bottom of things.
0: Today's episode continues after this short message from one of my sponsors who make the show possible, plus give you some great deals on my favorite things. ButcherBox features 100% grass-fed and finished heritage-bred pork and organic free-range chicken. ButcherBox sends you high-quality, health-promoting meats directly to your door on dry ice and free shipping anywhere in the lower 48. ButcherBox makes committing to quality protein sources less expensive and more available to everyone. Their prices are hard to beat, and it's challenging to find a higher quality product anywhere in the USA. I've been using ButcherBox for years and love the convenience of a package showing up just when I need it, and their ground sausage is an absolute dream. ButcherBox has put together a super special deal for all listeners of the show. Order your first box and get a special gift plus an additional $20 off. Now, this special gift is so epic that I can't even mention it on the episode today. So you'll have to go to butcherbox.com keto diet to check out the deal plus get your $20 off your very first order. Again, that's butcherbox.com keto diet to check out the deal plus get $20 off your first order. If you're unsure of the link, simply check out today's show notes for all the details.
1: So I think the first thing we should talk about is is cholesterol. Cholesterol is something that that tends to dominate the conversation about heart disease. Uh, and as you're going to find out, I don't think it's as important of a marker to be looking at, uh, or not the only important marker we should be looking at when it comes to heart disease. But yet, you know, Western medicine uh, tends to have this very myopic view of heart disease as caused by this high LDL number and high cholesterol and eating cholesterol is bad and all this stuff, uh, which is could be problematic on a ketogenic diet because you know we tend to eat more fat, and that's what we've been told is causative in in heart disease. And so, where did this all start? This all started with Ancel Keys, um, who was a scientist who, in the nineteen fifties, came out with a a study or I guess more of a a report, I guess, where he looked at uh, he basically, um, looked at, uh, he took surveys of the amount of, of animal fat or saturated fat and cholesterol that people ate in different countries and then looked at the rates of heart disease in that country. And he lined it up on a graph and showed that people, the countries that ate more saturated fat, had more heart disease. And so the funny thing is though, is that he, um, he kind of cherry picked the data because there was data from 22 countries available at the time. And he picked the six that uh, showed him the correlation that he wanted to see. And then he later did it with, in another study with, with seven countries. He added one more country. But there was 22 country, data from 22 countries available. And the funny thing is is that maybe a few years later, maybe it was 1959 or something like that, two statisticians, a scientist from UC Berkeley and a New York City um, a statistician that worked for New York State, redid the experiment and included the data from all 22 countries and found no correlation between uh, saturated fat consumption and heart disease. But the other problem with this is that this is this type of science is called epidemiology. Uh, and this is really important because today we're bombarded with a bunch of uh, media headlines that say, that say so-and-so or uh, whatever is associated with heart disease or associated with cancer or things like that. And when you see the word associated, then we're talking about an epidemiological study and the problem with epidemiology is that it's it's the lowest rung of of research that we can do. It's the bottom tier, which means it's not very good research. And so the only thing we can we can find with a epidemiological study is association, but we cannot say that uh, there was any cause. We don't know what the cause was. We can just see that there's an association. So the example I like to give is you, you can say that, let's say you're sitting in a traffic jam and it's cloudy outside. You can say that that traffic jam is associated with cloudiness because they're occurring at the same time, but you can't say that the cloudiness is causing the traffic jam or the traffic jam is causing the cloudiness. You just can't say that. And so that's exactly what happened, though, is that with these epidemiological studies, the government and academic institutions took them and they made recommendations based on those. You know, they, they found or they claimed that Especially Keys, Ansel Keys claimed that that this association was 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 proving that saturated fat causes heart disease, causes atherosclerosis and heart disease. And what really should be done is epidemiological studies should Uh, we should say oh that's interesting there's an association there now let's design a clinical trial to see if in fact that association is is a is a causal relationship where one causes the other and that just doesn't happen but there are many other flaws with epidemiology epidemiology studies as well flaws in that it's based on surveys so you're asking people to remember what they ate long time a long time ago which i could tell you what i ate three four months ago because i eat the same thing all the time Um, but most people probably couldn't tell you what they don't remember what they ate or how much of what they ate and so that's that's a problem but also there's what's called healthy user bias so lots of times people who have been following the dietary recommendations from the government and academic institutions for the last 40 50 years have been told that meat is bad saturated fat is bad so they're eating less of it and those are people who are very health conscious they're trying to be healthy they're trying to follow those recommendations Uh, and so they're also doing things like exercising and reducing their stress and not smoking and not drinking and not exposing themselves to toxins because they care about these things. And so can we say that the benefit, the associational benefit that we see is from them not eating meat and saturated fat, or is it from all the other healthy behaviors they did? And then vice versa. um, What if we look at people who didn't care about their health or just weren't interested in their health. And so, you know, they didn't pay attention to the recommendation to not eat saturated fat or not eat meat and ate a ton of it but they also did other unhealthy behaviors because they didn't really care about their health. So they smoked and drank and didn't exercise and were sedentary and all these different things. So. Was it the meat and saturated fat they were eating, or was it the poor diet overall that they had and all the other unhealthy behaviors that they did? And so that's a really big problem with epidemiology is that we there's so many variable factors and we can't prove one thing or the other. So uh, just know that when you look out in the headlines, uh, especially you know headlines for ketogenic diets or high fat diets or research on high fat or animal products or things like that, just know that if you see the word association, or even if you don't see the word association, um we see linked or anything like that, then that's an epidemiological study, and we can't really draw conclusions from that. So that's how it all started. but then looking taking a step back and looking at things from an evolutionary perspective, cholesterol is a, is a molecule that evolution preserved for millions of years um, from the time that we first became human and even before that, before uh, humans first came around and so if if cholesterol was this evil thing that was causing the disease, you know back when when natural selection was really taking place it would have removed that i mean you know people um or or even animals before us who had high cholesterol that was so damaging to us they would have been selected out they would have died sooner and that that trait would have been selected out yet cholesterol was preserved and so it's it's very essential for life and just thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective is very interesting but then we look at the modern science we see that cholesterol is necessary for many many different things i mean it's it's very necessary for assisting our body in in defense from infection, um, it's it's key for cellular repair. It's key for decreasing inflammation in the body. It's key for the health of like our cellular receptors, so our body can receive or our cells can receive things and, and take them in. Cholesterol is the backbone for all of our hormones, including our sex hormones. It's, uh, it's it helps us make vitamin D. It carries around the fat soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. Uh, which are essential for health. We don't have fat-soluble vitamins. We're in trouble. Um, it's essential for delivering energy. So if if we want to have good energy, um, we need cholesterol to do that. It plays a role in muscle function, and it actually prevents vascular calcification, which is interesting because that's what it's been blamed on doing. Um, and so, yeah, it actually um, it helps with the conversion of vitamin K1 to K2. And that helps prevent atherosclerosis because it helps deposit minerals where they need to go. Instead of in the artery, they go into the bone um, where, they sh- where they're supposed to go. So cholesterol has all these these amazing benefits. And so if we think about it, you know, cholesterol, which we're going to talk about atherosclerosis here in a minute and how cholesterol is not the culprit. But if cholesterol is not the culprit and it has all these benefits, then lowering it, with a statin drug or with a cholesterol-lowering medication, now there's these newer ones called PCSK9 inhibitors, that can be problematic because we're taking away all the benefits that this LDL has for us. And just a few, you know, kind of anecdotal things. You know, personally, when I went on a ketogenic diet, my my cholesterol went up, and I was you know, a, little, a little freaked out about that because I, at the time, I didn't know, you know what I know now. And then when I went on a carnivore diet, which I've been doing for a little while now. Um, it went way up my cholesterol went way up and so some of the benefits that i noticed from that actually are one that when i first went on a heavy ketogenic diet i used to get sick often and now i don't and even if i do like i mean i'll correct that i'll say i do get sick because i can feel it i can feel like in the back of my throat or um, i can feel like in my nose like i do get these these symptoms of kind of a cold but it never develops in anything i never have uncontrollable sneezing or coughing i never develops into a full cold i just kind of you know for a day or two i get these little tiny symptoms um, and i can tell that there's something in there but the high cholesterol that i have is really taking care of that infection because it's binding the the bacteria so that they can't take a hold of me Um, and that's just one advantage from having high cholesterol but the other advantage is that as a type 1 diabetic i'm very sensitive to to the insulin that i take Um, i can really tell how my body's reacting to insulin and when i when my cholesterol went up i noticed a definite increased sensitivity to the insulin i was taking i had to take less or my body was just more responsive to it and so that's because um, the insulin receptor um, there's a molecule that's made from cholesterol called Dollycol. and it's really important for the insulin receptors uh, to function so those are just two benefits that i noticed from from having higher cholesterol so then we have to look at things though because you know most of the time a cardiologist is going to tell you uh, no ldl needs to be down we don't want it to be high Um, But there's these clear advantages. And so um, I think that we need to look at things like, you know, people with genetically low cholesterol, people with A-beta lipoproteinemia, they tend to have problems with recurrent infections. Uh, They tend to have uh, problems with walking like ataxia because the cholesterol can't nourish their nerves. Uh, They tend to have blindness because they can't deliver vitamin A to the the eyes because there's no cholesterol. Uh, And they tend to die earlier, like in their fourth or fifth generations. And so then conversely, people would say, okay, yeah, so LDL has all these benefits, but it's still problematic when it goes when it becomes high. It has a role in the body, but when it gets too high, that's a problem. And so then we can look at people with familial hypercholesterolemia, where they had genetically very high cholesterol. Uh, and in those people, we actually see interesting things. So there was a study done where they looked at... Uh, They traced, they looked back through history of a family that had genetic traits of familial hypercholesterolemia, and they looked at over two centuries, um, so, you know, 200 years, and they traced this family. And they found that these people didn't die any sooner than people with quote unquote normal cholesterol. And they found that they tended to have an advantage in times where infection was running around. These people tend to have resistance to infection. Uh, resistance to infection. So, um, very interesting stuff there. So, and I've also had many people reach out to me and say they have familiar hypercholesterolemia and their calcium, or their coronary artery calcium score is zero. So they have this high cholesterol, genetically very high cholesterol, and they have no atherosclerosis in their coronary arteries. So LDL is is not the cause here. Uh, but what what do we want to look for in a blood panel then? And so, if you get your lipid panel, a I think that's a very myopic view. We're going to talk about the markers that I think are better to track. Uh, but if you get a lipid panel, what you want to see is you want to see that your, um, if your LDL is high, that's okay as long as your HDL is also high within the normal to high range, as long as your triglycerides are low, you know under 100, and as long as you have low markers of inflammation. And so some markers of inflammation would be like uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein or myeloperoxidase or uh, you could look at insulin resistance. So you could look at your fasting insulin uh, and your fasting blood sugar and calculate your HOMA-IR score. And those are all blood markers that we want to be looking at because we can't just look at the blood panel, the lip to cholesterol panel in, in general uh, and say, um, this is good or bad. We have to look at the blood panel as a whole. And so if there's lots of inflammation in the body, then LDL could become problematic. It's still not the cause of atherosclerosis. The inflammation is the cause. But we want that blood panel to look like that. Luckily, a ketogenic diet is very likely to do those things. It's very likely to decrease inflammation. Uh, long term, uh, and as well, it's it's also um, going to increase HDL, decrease triglycerides. Just restricting carbohydrates in general is what tends to do this, uh, and so that's the ideal kind of blood panel we want to uh, look at. So there's a number of people that you know their their cholesterol um, goes way up on a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet or something like that, and I want to be the first one to say that that's not a problem as long as other things look okay. So that's what we have to work for. We have to be knowledgeable about that.
0: I hope you're really enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. Snap a pic and tag me at Healthful Pursuit or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff.
1: So let's move on. So if cholesterol is not causing atherosclerosis, then what is causing atherosclerosis? What is causing the hardening of arteries that we're seeing across the population? And first, we have to talk about the, the, the artery itself. And so the artery has these layers. And so there's the subendothelial space, which is the, the layer beneath the cells that line the artery. Then there's the cells that line the artery called the endothelium. Then there's a glycocalyx, which is kind of like this fiber-like, um, kind of like a shag carpet uh, on, that lines the artery a little bit and protects the lining of the artery. And then there's a very little known layer on top of that that's actually formed by water. And so there's this this new science is coming out, coming into um, the mainstream a little bit uh, that's showing that when the water in our blood, because our blood is almost half water, is energized enough, uh, it starts to form this layer of what's called exclusion zone water uh, next to the lining of the artery, um, right on top of the glycocalyx. And the reason that it's called exclusion zone water is because the way that it forms, it kind of splits the water molecule up and then combines in a different way. Uh, the way that it forms, it excludes everything that's not it. So if there's if there's this layer of this exclusion zone water lining the artery around the whole circumference of the artery, then the contents of the blood, no matter what's, what's in it, will never touch the lining of the artery because it excludes everything. It keeps it. And so Dr. Gerald Pollack has done the most research on this, and in his book, he says that says that the protein albumin was excreted, meaning it couldn't or excluded. Uh, It couldn't come in contact with anything that was on the other side of the exclusion zone water that formed. And the curious thing about that is that the protein albumin is one of the smallest molecules in the blood. And an LDL molecule, even a damaged one like lipoprotein little A, is way bigger than protein albumin. So if if albumin can't get in there, then these LDL molecules aren't going to touch the lining of the artery if we have that intact exclusion zone surface that's lining the artery. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, how does atherosclerosis atherosclerosis form if this, if this water is there? Well, there's things that can break down that water. And it turns out to be the same things that we see when we look at things that cause atherosclerosis, like excess inflammation in the body. And so because of the way the exclusion zone water forms, it it's a very negative, negatively charged area. The whole area of it, it just has a, a, a net negative charge. And so things that are looking for electrons, which are negatively charged and looking to steal electrons from that area will, will, uh, will break down the exclusion zone water. And so those are things called free radicals. So people may have heard of this thing called oxidative stress. where We get a buildup of free radicals in our body and that can cause inflammation in the body. So these things, when they're floating around the blood, they can steal electrons from that exclusion zone water and break it down. And then the things that were causing to break, the things that were causing the breakdown of exclusion zone water will now end up having contact with the glycocalyx and then the endothelium. And then we get damage. We get damage to the endothelium. We get damage to the lining of the artery. And that damage is what's causing atherosclerosis because in response to that damage, the body says, OK, we have to do something. We have to repair that. And so it takes whatever it can to make kind of like this spackle and it repairs that artery so that it's hard so that we don't get a ruptured artery, which would be a problem. And so it takes cholesterol and calcium and various other minerals. They've even found um, oxalate, which is a plant toxin in the lining of arteries. So it takes these things that it can build this hard surface so that we don't get a ruptured artery. So that's what we're measuring when we're measuring a coronary artery calcium scan. We're measuring the amount of calcium that's been deposited in there so that it can you know, not rupture and so then we have to ask ourselves well, where are we getting all these free radicals well the interesting thing is that on a ketogenic diet it's been shown in multiple tissues of the body that being in ketosis and burning fatty acids and ketones for fuel will result in less free radical production less oxidative stress so being on a ketogenic diet we're producing less of those molecules that'll break down our exclusion zone water the other interesting thing is is that things like heavy metals uh, like mercury and cadmium things like that have been shown to you know when they're present in the body in high amounts we get increased atherosclerosis Um, and i think that's no coincidence because those metals which our body has no physiologic need for are they act like free radicals in the body and so uh, they can damage the lining of the exclusion zone, water and then the endothelia because they're toxins and so that's that's why smoking has been increased or has been Shown to increase rates of atherosclerosis because it's very high in toxins, and uh, you're putting those toxins in your body, and they're causing you know free radical damage to the lining of the artery. and Then we have to repair it, and so there's there's many different toxins we could be exposed to, but those are the, those are the main things there. Even internal toxins like toxins from uh, uh, endotoxemia. So if we have leaky gut, bacteria from our gut could be leaking into the bloodstream, and those bacteria are not supposed to be there, and that's called endotoxemia. And those have been shown to, to um, increase atherosclerosis. So there's lots of different things. So the real cause of atherosclerosis is inflammation from eating processed, carbohydrate-rich foods that were, you know, causing inflammation, but also creating less or creating more free radicals in the process of burning them. And also toxin exposure, those are the the main two, I think that are driving this disease and that that cholesterol has kind of been framed in this uh, process because it was found at the scene of the crime uh, as the repair mechanism uh, and it kind of got blamed. So that's the thing with with cholesterol. So as as long as, again, I'll reiterate, as long as your if your cholesterol is high, that's okay as long as other markers of inflammation are low. And as long as we have good triglyceride numbers and good HDL numbers, that's, the, that's the, kind of the, um, what we want to look for to know if we're being protected against atherosclerosis.
0: Today's episode continues after this short message from one of my sponsors who make the show possible, plus give you some great deals on my favorite things. Today's show is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, the makers of my favorite magic elixirs like the lion's mane elixir. Add to coffee, your morning tea, smoothies, shakes, you name it and watch your anxiety go down and your cognitive function increase. Each of their elixirs are formulated to support various aspects of your health and wellness from brain function to energy production, relaxation, and more. They're easy to travel with, you can add them to any liquid, and they're pretty tasty too. Use the coupon code KETO, all in caps, for 15% off all things at foursigmatic.com slash keto. Unsure of the link? Check out today's show notes for all the details.
1: Now, the next thing really blew my mind when I came across it, but the next thing is that there's this this notion that atherosclerosis and buildup of plaque in the arteries will get so extensive especially in the the heart arteries will get so extensive that it it blocks an artery and that restricts oxygen to the heart uh, and the heart um, then gets damaged it gets ischemia or tissue death because there's no oxygen to that tissue and that's the the thought there so you know if we want to protect ourselves from atherosclerosis and that kind of thing happening then obviously we want to be on a, a low carbohydrate diet and avoid toxins the best we can However, there's some really interesting research um, by an Italian guy named uh, Giorgio Baraldi, who did a lot of his research um, you know, from like the 1950s until the early 2000s when he died. And he's, he did a lot of interesting things. So one thing that he found was that, well, he did these plastic cast studies. So he he would take the hearts of people who died of heart attacks or didn't die of heart attacks or just out of an accident or whatever, and he would do autopsies and he would take the heart and he would put a like latex or neoprene uh, solution into, like, he would pump it into the arterial system of the heart, and then he would take hydrochloric acid, or he'd wait for the, that um, neoprene or latex to, to harden, or dry and harden, and then he would take a hydrochloric acid solution and he would dissolve away the tissue around it. And what he was left with was a perfect cast of um, the arterial system of the heart. Uh, and I've seen this done, like, uh, like if you go to, like, the Body World exhibits or the Animals Inside Out exhibits that travel around, um, they do this with the different animals or different organs and things like that. So this is what he did. And some curious things that he found was that anywhere that there was a more than 75 or more than 70% blockage, um, like atherosclerosis um, buildup and blockage of an artery in the heart, that the body um, had built a collateral system of arteries that went around it. Um, and totally bypassed it. And he said anywhere from 16 to 30 different arteries that went around it. They were smaller, and you can't really see them on an angiogram because it was just not that big. Um, But there was so many of them that they completely bypassed the blockage. And then I found some other research that shows that these arteries can form within four days. I found one that said they can form within seven days, and I found another article that says they can form within four days. So they gradually produced a blockage in an artery, in, in in an animal and the the body built this collateral network of arteries in four days. So to me, that tells me that the only, and, and that's the thing is that Baraldi found this in every single case where there was more than 70% blockage, he found this collateral system of arteries. So what that tells me is that maybe the atherosclerosis buildup causing a blockage doesn't necessarily drive heart attacks or the mechanism behind heart attacks. Now there are still heart attacks that can definitely happen from uh say like a clot formation that like uh, we get damage to the lining of an artery a clot forms and that flows down to a smaller blood vessel and blocks temporarily blocks the uh, blood flow and we get ischemia that way that can definitely happen but i think that there's this whole other mechanism how heart attacks can happen if we have this bypass of collateral systems and so um, i started really looking into it and trying to figure out what that was and the other interesting thing that Beraldi found is that when he did these autopsies, he found that there were people that, you know, died of a heart attack that had no blockage present. And, you know, cardiologists have told me that that's because the blockage was dissolved away before the they did the autopsy. Or he found that, say this person had a heart attack and there was atherosclerotic buildup in one area of the heart or in one artery of the heart, but the heart attack happened in a completely different area of the heart. So there's all these confusing findings that he found. And so, When I look at what I think causes a heart attack, I think it causes some heart attacks. I think that there's three imbalances in the body that can drive this. One of them is not being very well fat adapted, uh, not being well adapted to burning fat for fuel. Another is high oxidative stress, which we talked about, um, and high free radical uh, from getting toxin exposure and and uh, not burning fat for fuel, and the third one is is an autonomic nervous system imbalance, so your autonomic nervous system is basically the system in your body that that interprets your environment and tells your body if it's in a safe or threatening environment, and the problem is is that we can get an imbalance and that our body can be interpreting that we're in a threatening environment more often than it should be. And that can happen from modern day stresses, stresses that we're not really evolved to handle. And so, you know, if we look at our our modern life, there's something to do all the time. You know, there's all these notifications on our phone. We can get stressed out in traffic. We can be worried about our kids, our jobs, our our schooling, whatever. You know, and there's just constant stressors in our life that, um, that make our life very difficult. And that can create an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. Uh, and when that happens, we get stuck in what's called the sympathetic state. And our, and our bodies, we get improper signaling to the organs of our body because our body is interpreting, like our senses are interpreting the environment around us saying if we're in a safer, threatening environment, the brain interprets that and then sends out the correct signal to the organs. So do we need to get away from a threat or do we need to uh, rest and digest and uh, do that kind of stuff? So an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system is is that third imbalance there. So I wanna string those three things together, uh, not being fat adapted, oxidative stress, and the imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. I wanna string those together and explain what causes a heart attack in those cases where there's no blockage. And so what happens is, is that the heart is a very special organ because it, you know, unlike the rest of the body, it has been shown in research that that the heart prefers to burn fatty acids and ketones. So in most of the body, when glucose is present, your body will burn the glucose first. That 's kind of like the oxidative priority the the burning of energy priority for it it 'll burn the glucose that 's why we have to restrict carbohydrates for our body to burn fat to get into ketosis. but the heart, even in the presence of glucose, if you put ketones there, it will burn those first, um, which is very interesting and so I think that plays a huge role because I think that when the heart is forced to burn more carbohydrate or more glucose than it wants to that 's when bad things happen and and you 'll see what I mean here in a minute. The other thing is that oxidative stress has been shown to decrease uh, nitric oxide. So nitric oxide is a molecule that's made in the lining of our arteries. Uh, and it's and it's really important for that proper signaling of the autonomic nervous system to our heart. Um, and so if we have atherosclerosis, then those, the lining of our arteries can't really make uh, enough nitric oxide. And also if we have high oxidative stress then nitric oxide can be used to neutralize some of that those free radicals that are floating around so that depletes nitric oxide as well so if we don't have enough nitric oxide we can't get proper signaling to the heart cells so what happens here is that we have these if we have these two preconceived things we have high oxidative stress and we're also not well fat adapted so our bodies our hearts probably having to burn more glucose than it wants to then we can in the in the i guess the setting of those two imbalances we can also be very stressed and if we have a major stressful event that happens which we know that heart attacks there's been studies that show that heart attacks happen during more stressful days of the year and so mondays was a, was a big one they noticed a huge correlation with with heart attacks on mondays and so what happens is we have these preconceived Im- imbalances and then we have a stressful event that happens and when that stressful event happens usually what should happen is that our heart should send the stress signal to the organs of the body to the heart and what should happen is we should get that stress response of the heart but then we we should also get an a, a lesser kind of balancing uh, non-stress response that's how it's normally supposed to happen to keep those the two systems balanced we don't want too much of a stress response but the problem is is that nitric oxide is essential for that non-stress signal to be sent to the heart cells. They can't get into the cell and send the signal without nitric oxide. So if we depleted nitric oxide from atherosclerosis uh, or from too many free radicals in the body, then if we get that stress signal and we don't get the balancing, like the lesser non-stress signal with it supposed to happen, then our body, our heart gets this full stress signal. And so when we get that full stress signal, the body, when we're in a stressful situation, it mobilizes things to get us away from a threat. So we need to run away or fight it off or anything like that. And so when that happens, just like if you go for a run, your body gets a, your muscles get a stress signal and they start burning glucose, the stored glycogen in the muscles. And when you start burning glucose in those muscles, you start to get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions. And that's the muscle burn you feel when you go for a run. And the thing is, is that when you go for a run, you can just stop running if the muscle gets to hurting too much. But if this happens in the heart, if we get this stress signal without the balance non stress signal, then the heart can all of a sudden switch into burning more glucose than it wants to. And we can't just stop the heart from pumping. And so what happens is is that we get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, which creates creates a burning sensation in the chest, um, which is what we would call angina. And then two things happen. One, that buildup of lactic acid causes swelling in the tissue and it interferes with calcium getting absorbed into the cells. Calcium is how the muscles contract. So then if we're interfering with heart muscle contraction, that's a problem. And then also it creates a swelling, This, this, um, and we've seen this in, in skeletal muscle too, but in the cardiac muscle we get this increase of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, we get a swelling of the heart tissue. And when that happens, usually the pressure is more coming from the arteries into the cells, into the tissues so that the blood can get in there. But when we get this swelling, the pressure changes. The swelling gets to be too much. Now the blood can't get in because the pressure is more going out. And so then the blood cannot get to the area of the heart where it's affecting, um, where it's having uh, the stress signal and blood can't get in there. The muscles can't contract because there's no calcium. We get tissue death. And so this whole cascade of events happens because of these imbalances, because we're not well fat adapted, because if we have a stress response in the heart and we're not well fat adapted, it's just more likely to go into burning glucose for fuel. Um, We deplete nitric oxide with um, atherosclerosis and with high toxins in the body. And um, then we get this imbalanced stress response uh, and that can trigger the whole series of events if these other two imbalances are in place. So that's kind of what I've come across that that explains to me how we could get a heart attack without a blockage and and why there's this large percentage where we don't find a blockage. And so that begs the question of how do we make sure these things, uh, these imbalances aren't happening as well as, you know, a, a lipid panel and those inflammatory markers we were talking about before that is one thing we need to be tracking for our heart health or for our status of heart health. But the other things I think are, are we in ketosis? Or do we have the ability to readily get in ketosis? Even if you break it by eating carbs, sometimes do we have the ability to get into ketosis easily? So that would be tracking ketones, whether it's through urine or breath or, um, or blood blood's probably the most accurate. Um, but tracking that you're in ketosis so that you're making ketones and burning them. The next thing we should be tracking is oxidative stress. We should be tracking, we could track nitric oxide directly in the blood test, testing for nitric oxide. We could also test for asymmetrical dimethyl arginine or asymmetrical dimethyl arginine, which are markers of um, uh, the arginine molecule in the, in the production of nitric oxide in the endothelial cells, which is very important. We also want to be tracking markers of oxidative stress in our body and inflammation in general in our body. So I mentioned that, that we want to be tracking, you know, the inflammation like high sensitivity C-reactive protein or myeloperoxidase, things like that. But I also think we should be tracking markers of oxidative stress directly. So we could look at damage to fats in the body, like looking at uh, lipid peroxides. Uh, we could look at uh, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is a, a marker of DNA damage from oxidative stress. Um, we could be looking at GGT, which is an enzyme in the liver that would be elevated if we had um, oxidative stress. So all those types of things are very important to be looking at as well. And if you want like a full list of what I think people should be tracking, I've written about this in, in my blog at resourceyourhealth.com. So you can go there and check that out. But then the last thing we should be looking at is, is this balance in our autonomic nervous system. I think that's very, very important. And I think it's driving not just um, heart attacks, but but chronic disease um, in general, and so the best marker that we know of to track for balance in our autonomic nervous system is heart rate variability and heart rate variability is basically like if you were to take your pulse right now and you were to um, take a deep breath in, you would feel your pulse quicken. And then as you breathe out slowly, you'll notice that your pulse slows down. And so the difference between the fastest that it gets when you take a breath in and the slowest it gets when you take a breath out is your heart rate variability. And so, basically, this is measuring your ability to adapt. Uh, so, if you have a very narrow heart rate variability where it's not much difference, then you're kind of stuck in, in one state. You're kind of stuck in the middle. You can't go from one, you know, stress state to non-stress state. You can't go to the extremes. And so, what we want is a high heart rate variability. Uh, and the way we can track that is there's lots of different devices um, out there. That you can you know wear on your wrist or there's rings or there's devices you can just put your uh, like finger in and it'll test it at that moment in time Um, but there's lots of different devices you can use to track that to track heart rate variability and so those i think are the are the big ones we need to be tracking are we in ketosis or do we have the ability to readily get in ketosis do we have high oxidative stress and looking at blood markers of that and then also our heart rate variability those are the big ones I think that we need to be tracking for, for heart health, but especially as risk for heart attack. And so this myopic view of looking at cholesterol and LDL and, and saying that, yes, this is going to determine whether you're going to have a heart attack or not, I think is very short sighted. Um, and we need to be looking at the the whole picture here. The last subject I want to talk about is heart failure. So we talked about heart attacks. We talked about atherosclerosis. The other component of heart disease is, is heart failure. And so I don't have much time to get into all the mechanics of heart failure, but basically when you look at the heart and the form and, and what it does, the heart is not really a true pressure propulsion pump. Like we're taught, it's not the thing that's pumping the, the blood forcefully around the body. And so there's, there's lots of evidence out there to suggest this. And there was one doctor named Branko first who wrote a whole book uh you know 200 page book basically read like a 200 page research article um, with all the evidence showing that the heart is not this true pressure propulsion pump it does provide some flow for the blood um, but the true role of the heart is uh it's it's a vortex so it swirls the blood and there's a reason that it does that and so that remember when we were talking about the exclusion zone layer of the arteries and how that forms and how that protects the arteries well it also does something else it also creates an energy gradient that actually drives blood flow and this has been proven in the lab of of dr gerald pollock and so when we have this this intact exclusion zone water it actually drives blood flow by moving water and then whatever's in the contents of that water which is all the blood and the and the metabolites in the blood it drives blood flow so that the heart doesn't have to be the sole pumper of the blood and there's there's lots of things that can help energize the water in our blood and that could be things like infrared sauna or sunlight is the natural way to get infrared light it could be contact with the earth um, and absorbing electrons and energy from the earth it could be human touch it could be um, swirling or vortexing and if you look at the heart and the way it's um, designed and the way it's oriented when it contracts it swirls um, the blood um, and swirling it in the presence of oxygen which i think there's no mistake that there's no coincidence that the, the lungs and the heart are so close to each other, each other and the blood goes back and forth between the two um, because when you swirl blood or water in the presence of oxygen, it energizes it. And so what causes heart failure then? Heart failure is caused, I think, when the heart is, having, is forced to pump the blood more than it's designed to do um, because it's not this, this pressure propulsion pump that's causing all the, the blood flow. Uh, we have these other mechanisms like the exclusion zone water, also the movement of our muscles, also the pressure gradient between our lungs and the pressure that it creates, um, lots of different ways that the blood moves. And so if we don't have this energized, uh, if, the, if the water in our blood is not energized enough and the heart is forced to do more pumping than it's designed to do, then what we get is we get this expanding of the heart muscle. Uh, because it's having to create so much force and pressure that it's not designed to do and that's exactly what we see in heart failure the heart loses its shape of this football-like looking thing and it becomes more of this basketball type thing and so what's and then we also see that people with heart failure get you know fluid retention they get swelling of their tissues Um, and that makes sense because if the heart's having to force is forced to have to do more pumping than it's designed to, then it also means that the fluid in the body and the blood is not moving either. So it's pooling up in areas of the body. So we really misunderstood heart failure too, because we've misunderstood the heart as a whole. Um, and these are things that I've written about a lot on my blog. And so the other aspect of this is that in, in heart failure, people are told to not take salt or not eat salt, because that will create more fluid retention. But there's absolutely no evidence Behind that, and there's even and there's plenty of systematic review articles that show that there's there's absolutely no evidence behind that, and there's even one article that showed that they were giving um, heart failure patients a diuretic, and then they compared that with giving them a diuretic and saline solution, and so and the people who got the saline solution as well as the diuretic, they had less uh, return for hospitalizations for heart failure, they had increased heart function, they had better quality of life so and it makes sense too because if you're if you're taking in uh, if you're not taking in any minerals in the form of salt uh, your body's going to want to hold on to as many minerals as it can because you're not intaking any and the the way that it holds on minerals is it retains fluid because minerals have to be dissolved in fluid so it's retaining all this because you don't have enough minerals whereas we give the body minerals in the form of salt now it can afford to waste some of that fluid because it's got enough minerals to replace it uh, so that Um, that results in the better outcomes for these heart failure patients. So going back to like a ketogenic diet, the really interesting thing about heart failure is that there's plenty of studies, uh, just a ton of them, that show that the preferred fuel source for the failing heart, people in heart failure, is ketones. And to me, this makes sense because the heart is having to do more work than it wants to. Um, Its preferred fuel source is ketones, so why would it not want those preferably in heart failure when it's having to do the most work it needs the most efficient fuel and that is ketone so another argument for a ketogenic diet on for people with heart failure but also it makes sense too because one things about ketogenic diets is that we need to make sure we're replacing our electrolytes and getting enough uh, mineral salt uh, like like real salt or or sea salt or himalayan salt those types of things and uh, those are very very important um, on ketogenic diets and they're even more important for people with heart failure. I'm not saying that people in heart failure should just go and like take a ton of salt, but they shouldn't restrict it either. Um, and know that it's, it's actually going to help them. So that's, that's kind of all that I found uh, on the heart. So just to kind of wrap things up, I think that I think that the ketogenic diet, is the best thing that people can do for any type of heart disease, um, as long as they're also doing things that also reduce inflammation, like avoiding toxins and stuff. I think that we've completely misunderstood the heart and its in the its function, its role, and the development of the diseases we associate with the heart. So I think that um, we need to take a a big picture look at this and kind of reassess things. And hopefully, you all gain some some information from me that will help you help guide you in your your quest to heart health and you know what markers to track and what things to do but i just want to uh, leave off with a you know, way you can find me and so i'm active on social media i post a lot about the heart uh, on my instagram and my facebook and my twitter and so all my handles there are just at dr stephen hussey that's dr stephen hussey so you can find me there i also have my blog at resourceyourhealth.com blog where I write a lot about the heart as well. And you can also um, email me directly if you're interested in, in coaching or any of the information that I've, I've put out there. Please please ask me questions. Uh, my email is steven, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, you, can, you can find me there if you're interested in coaching or anything like that. It was an honor to be on, and I hope that everybody enjoyed it. Stay healthy out there.
0: So mind-blowing, right? Didn't you just love today's episode? I know I really enjoyed listening to it. Okay, Wednesday, February 12th, episode 231, my friends Jesse and Marnie are chatting about how to build a healthy life with your partner. And Sunday, February 16th, episode 232, I'm going to be sharing my amenorrhea story with you, how I had a lack of period for eight years, how I got it back. I cannot even believe it's been four and a half years since I got my period back and I just really wanted to share my amenorrhea story with you to encourage you that if you're in a place with your hormones that are you're just really frustrated your fertility and you're just trying to make a baby there's hope for all of us I totally believe that so I will see you soon okay bye Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, nor should it be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.